0: Luke 9 verses 57 to 62 will be our text this evening. What it means to follow Jesus. Several weeks ago now, in Luke 9, we spent our time speaking about salvation as Jesus presented the reality of the man who has accepted Christ as a man who has taken up his cross and followed Christ. Jesus says in Luke 9, verses 23 and 24, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whosoever will save his life shall lose it, but whosoever will lose his life for my sake, the same shall save it. And as we considered this teaching, we attached it to salvation. Remember, there's coming another one where Jesus says if any man will be my disciple let him take up his cross and we attached that one to walking to fellowship to discipleship to sanctification but we attached this one to salvation knowing the context within which it was preached and the context was Jesus Christ asking who do men say that I am and his identity and we recognized okay Jesus is saying here that there's many who believe Jesus is a good man there's many who believe he's a good prophet but they do not accept him as Messiah and on the day of judgment they will be sorely mistaken they will realize that they were sorely mistaken they will, be, uh, they will realize that they have fallen short of that which is necessary unto eternal life we attach, so we attach this idea to salvation and we emphasize the reality that the man or woman who has truly placed his faith in Christ uh, has assumed in himself a measure of denial of self we have to deny self at least to the very point where we recognize that Our eternity cannot be secured by us. That's what we're saying this evening, right? What can wash away my sin? Not me. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Nothing can for sin atone. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Not the good that I have done. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. It's important to stress in this matter the difference, however, between cause and effect. According to the scripture, salvation is by grace alone through faith alone in the finished work of Jesus Christ. That salvation happens when a person understands he is a sinner, he is unable to save himself, and then he looks to the finished work of Jesus Christ in full faith that Jesus did for him what he cannot do for himself. And at this moment of genuine faith, not just knowing it in his head, but committing to it in his heart, the Bible says a man is made new in Christ. He's given a new heart. He has made a new creation. He's saved from the power and the penalty of sin. And with this new life and new heart comes new desires which a man or woman is then compelled through which to follow Jesus. As such, we can rightly say that salvation itself is by grace alone, but that those who are saved will without fail begin a journey of following Christ in self-denial. This is not a condition of his salvation, but it is an inevitable result of his salvation. That if a person is in Christ, that he will begin a journey, some faster, some slower, of self-denial and of following in the footsteps of Christ. To that end, several weeks ago, I called upon each of us to examine our hearts and to determine whether or not we were truly in the faith. Whether or not we had genuinely accepted the grace of God by assessing whether or not we bore the genuine fruit of that faith. Now, don't mistake the simplicity of the gospel with a gospel of works, with a gospel of obligation, with a gospel of merit. But don't mistake the fruit of salvation that is a cross-bearing, life-yielding manner of living. Luke 9 has been all about faith in the identity of Jesus Christ, who He is and what He has claimed to do. It has caused us to be confronted with questions of faith and obedience. Of whether we truly believe Jesus to be Savior or whether He's just a good man. And this evening, as we spend our final message in Luke 9, we've been here a while now, as we spend our final message in Luke 9, we're going to explore some of the things which keep a man from saving faith. The disposition in a man's heart which would encourage him, call him, tempt him to reject the call of God unto salvation. The fruit of a man's heart that shows he has not truly accepted the gospel for what it is, or accepted Christ for who he is. And again, we're not in a very large portion of scripture this evening. Verses 57 to 62. And we pick up in verse 57 in our text. And the Bible says this, And it came to pass, that as they went in the way, a certain man said unto him, Lord, I will follow thee, whithersoever thou goest. Here we find a template for each of our examples this evening. We find a man who says to Jesus, or Jesus says to him, to one degree or another, follow me or I will follow you. I will follow you, two men say. Jesus says to one, follow me. Now, as the man says this, I will follow you wherever you go. This is a fantastic statement, isn't it? It's exactly what you want to hear from someone. But words mean very little in the grand scheme of things. Anybody who follows politics knows that. Words are pretty much useless without... Actions Words without works are little more than good intentions Good intentions are everywhere But as the old saying goes The road to hell is paved with good intentions This man says he wants to follow Jesus As a matter of fact he says unto him I will follow you And in his mind, in his mind No doubt he truly means it But the question is Has it hit his heart? And there's a difference between saying you will follow Jesus wherever he goes and actually following Jesus wherever he goes, isn't there? There's a difference between wanting something and truly committing to something. And so we find Jesus' reply in verse 58. And Jesus says to him, said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man hath not where to lay his head. Jesus responds by saying, I don't have a home. Now, Jesus is not saying here that no one ever met his needs. We know that many have met his needs. We know that there was a band of women who communicated of their wealth to meet his needs. We know that there were people in many cities who took him in who met his needs. Jesus is not saying here that no one ever gave him a place to sleep. Jesus is saying that his life is one of yieldedness to the will of the Father so that he is not committed to a home And to the comforts and luxuries that are granted to some men upon this earth. You know, there are certain things that must be yielded to the cause which Jesus had committed himself unto. The priorities of the kingdom of heaven are not subject to the luxuries of this world. This is what Jesus was pointing out. That to be a follower of Christ in its purest and most definite sense is to yield the right. Now, let me put it that way. It's not to yield all money and all things, but it is, it is to yield the right to a home and to comforts and luxuries that are associated with the world within which we live. Now, we'll dig into this more, certainly, in our application. But let's just continue on and look at these other examples. Verse 59, we see a second example. And he said unto another, follow me. So this is Jesus saying to a man, follow me. But he said, Lord, suffer me first to go and bury my father. So unlike the account in verse 57 where the man comes and says, Lord, I will follow you. And this one, Jesus looks at a man and says, follow me. And the man appears quite willing to do so, doesn't he? I mean, he doesn't, the man doesn't say, no. The man simply says, let me first go and bury my father. Now, he says, give me just a little bit of time. And for a very noble reason, right? This is not a bad reason. Surely it would not be a problem for Jesus to wait for him to bury his father. And indeed, the problem with this man's request is not the request itself, but what this request says about this man's heart. What it means that he sees the need of burying his father as more urgent than the work that Jesus is calling him unto. And so Jesus responds in verse 60. Jesus said unto him, Let the dead bury their dead, but go thou and preach the kingdom of God. Let the dead bury their dead. I have called you to follow me now. I have called you to get up and come with me now to go and preach the kingdom of God now. It is not that Jesus has no compassion. Much to the contrary, we've seen throughout his ministry just how much compassion he has. In Luke 9, did we not see his tremendous compassion with the feeding of the 5,000? But Luke's purpose is not to highlight cases where Christ's compassion is the most necessary element. Luke's purpose in this is to highlight the cases where men have every natural desire to follow Jesus, but they're trying to follow Jesus while likewise holding on to the things of this world. They want to follow Christ, but they're hindered by an unwillingness to yield certain rights in order to do so. One more account in verses 61 and 62. And another also said, Lord, I will follow thee, but let me first go bid them farewell, which are at my house, which are at home at my house. In, this la- in the last case, we saw a man called by Jesus, but asked first to bury his dead father. We might justify, okay, Jesus, you know, he says, let the dead bury their dead. The man's already dead. It's not like it's going to do anything for him to bury. So, okay, I get that one. In this case, it would seem, however, that a man is offering himself with one stipulation, and and, and again, Jesus rejects it. He says, I will go, but first let me say goodbye to my family. And again, Jesus will contest him on this. But notice that with each of these scenarios, all three of them, the requests do not seem unreasonable do they? They really don't seem that unreasonable. Jesus says, follow me. And the man says, I will follow you, but first let me say goodbye to my family. To which Jesus responds in verse 62. Jesus said unto him, no man having put his hand to the plow and look it back, is fit, ready for use, useful for the kingdom of God. Jesus is using a farm analogy here. The man who puts his hand to the plow is the man who has chosen to commit himself to the work of Christ. Jesus says the man who puts his hand to the plow then looks back is not fit for the kingdom of heaven. Now notice here the word fit does not mean cannot enter. It means useful. Okay, He's not saying that if you hold any sort of regard, that if you do not commit... In every aspect of your life that you are not a Christian. There are there are many Christians who unfortunately will never commit the whole of their lives to serving Christ in the way Christ would have them to. But what he's saying is, if you put your hand to the plow, then you look back, you're not really useful to that plow. You are not fit. You're not ready to be used properly for the kingdom of heaven. The Christian who is ready to be used is the Christian who is ready to leave all to follow Christ. And with that very short little bit of exposition. We're going to jump into application this evening. Is uh, not a very uh, deep passage as far as what, what's there. It's, it, what, what's there is there. But what we do need to do is we need to look at each of these scenarios and we need to consider each of these scenarios as they present themselves and the different excuses that the the texts commit to us. The first point that I would like us to consider as we transition into our application is is number one, fully following Jesus means yielding your rights. Fully Fully following Jesus means yielding your rights. Now within the scope of the six verses that we have here, we find Jesus highlight three things which hold men back from following him. The first is material gain or comfort. The second is personal priorities and the third is personal relationships found in these three accounts is what we might consider the most likely reasons why a person falters in his determination to follow Christ. And so I would like us to address each one of these in turn. Uh, the first thing that might uh, might we might struggle with, this first account in verses 57 and 58, is a man who commits to following Jesus. After which, Jesus makes it very clear that to follow Christ wherever Christ would take him is not by default a life of ease. In fact, quite the opposite is often true. That to go where Christ wants you to go will mean various sacrifices to what you might otherwise desire of a comfortable standard of living. Fully following Christ means yielding your right to comfort, to material Now this does not mean that a person who fully commits to following Christ will without question face discomfort, will without question face poverty. The scriptures do not call us to yield material prosperity to follow Christ. To yield material comfort to follow Christ. The scriptures call us to yield the right to material prosperity to follow Christ. To yield the right to material comfort. To follow Christ. In Philippians 3, Paul describes it this way, beginning in verse 4. Though I might also have confidence in the flesh, if any other man thinketh that he hath, whereof he might trust in the flesh, I more, circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, and Hebrew of Hebrews, as touching the law of Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, touching the righteousness which is in the law, blameless." But what things were gained to me, those I counted loss for Christ. Yea, doubtless. And I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord. For whom I have suffered the loss of all things. And do count them but dung that I may win Christ. And be found in him not having mine own righteousness which is of the law. But that which is of the faith of Christ. Through the faith of Christ, excuse me. The righteousness which is of God by faith. And he says that I may know him and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His sufferings being made conformable unto his death. If by any means, he says, I might attain unto the resurrection of the dead. Paul describes his own situation, stating with clarity the degree to which he had physical and material advantages in the Jews' religion. He was a perfect Jewish specimen by all accounts. He was circumcised the eighth day. He was of the the, the stock of Benjamin. He was uh, zealous for the law to the extent that he was a Pharisee of the Pharisees, openly persecuting the church of christ he had positioned himself for great power and for great influence in the nation of israel and what with this he could be very materially and physically uh, prosperous but paul says those things were counted those things that had been counted as gain to him he counted but loss for christ he says, any physical or personal advantage that I might have had, I reckoned it as loss. It doesn't mean that he, without question, had to lose it. But he had to say, it's on the table, God. It's there. You can have it if you want it. And he did take it from Paul. The moment he reckoned the blessings of serving Christ, he decided that anything in this life that would stand in the way of Christ and his work was on the chopping block. It, was, it, it, it could go. If God wanted it to go and so yielding begins in the mind Paul yielded his right to everything and then submitted to Christ's will regarding what Christ would see fit to take away from him or to give to him now in Paul's case he says I suffered the loss of all things God did ask it of him didn't he. God took away his position among the Jews. God took away his honor in the nation. God took away his life of comfort and ease. God even took away his home. But Paul says that he counted these things but dung, refuse, loss, that he may win Christ. He says there's something so much greater when I give up that which I have in this life. When I yield it to him, even if Christ takes it away, there's something so much greater that I gained. When I yielded it to Christ. He saw the blessing and shared glory of Christ as far greater reward than any material gain, than any personal comfort. Paul says the privilege of knowing Christ was worth every physical sacrifice. Would to God you and I would have such a heart. Would to God that you and I would see the joys of fellowship with Christ of such importance and worth that we would be willing to yield our rights to every material gain, to every earthly comfort. And it doesn't mean he's going to, to take them. But let me ask you this. What if God would ask you to live in poverty? What if God would ask you to give up Some element of your lifestyle. The manner in which you live. What if God would ask you to live sacrifice? What if God would ask you, what if He would take your health in order that you might serve Him better? What if He might take your family in order that you might serve Him better? What if He might send you to a different culture? When the man says in verse 57, I will follow you, Jesus effectively says, what if I lead you to a place of poverty and sacrifice? And so the same question is being asked of you this evening. So you say you will follow Christ. But what if Christ asks you to live without? What if Christ asks you to earn a meager job that doesn't pay much so that you can spend more time serving the church? What if God asks you to sacrifice the comforts which you know best, the things, the people that you love the dearest, to minister to a group of people entirely different from you, who may not even listen? The point of Jesus' words to this first man are that those who fully follow Jesus have yielded their rights to material gain and comfort. It doesn't mean God will ask for them, but the right to have them is yielded. It's on the altar. doesn't mean God will ask for them, but if He does, are you ready and determined to give Him anything and everything if only Christ's glory can be seen through you? Your right to material gain and comfort Fully following Christ might also mean yielding your right to personal priorities. The second man did not approach Jesus, but rather Jesus approached him and said, follow me. The man seems very willing, but he says, first, let me bury my father. As we mentioned already. This personal priority in itself is not a bad thing. It shows respect and honor to his father. And this is right and good. The Bible, in fact, commands us to honor our father and mother. But our sin nature, and and take note of this, your sin nature, my sin nature has a way of taking that which is good and using it to keep us from that which is best. Of taking something that is good and saying, well, because I'm doing something that is good, I don't have to do that, which is best. We we kind of considered an example of this in our time together this morning, right? The man who says, well, labor and providing for my family and these things are good. And the flesh uses that which is good to keep him away from building relationships with his family because he's so busy working all the time he's so busy doing all of the time he's so busy encumbered with responsibility that he fails to maintain that which is more important and so the flesh has a way of doing this Satan has no problem with you pursuing that which is good as long as you're not pursuing that which is best the flesh has no problem with you pursuing that which is good as long as you're not pursuing what God actually wants of you and so it's not wrong for a man to go and to have a career and to have a family and, and, and to live in, in, in a, a comfortable environment and go to church unless God has called that man to go across the world and to minister somewhere else and then that good thing that he's pursuing helping out in his church being whatever it needs to be is actually keeping him from what God wants him to do and this is the idea here Jesus tells the man let the bed dead bury their dead but go and preach the gospel If the world, the flesh, and the devil can convince us that our earthly priorities are of such importance that we will yield Christ's heavenly priorities to maintain them, then the world, the flesh, or the devil has won. You have retained your right. And in doing so, you have yielded the greater part. You have yielded the heavenly blessing for the sake of earthly priorities. Because even though you're trying to do good things, you have not given up your right to choose those things now the legacy of the twelve was a legacy of dropping all and following Christ was it not think back to Jesus calling these men Peter and Andrew are fishing in the sea of Galilee when Jesus looked at them and said follow me and I will make you fishers of men and what did they do Matthew four twenty says they straightway left their nets and followed him They didn't say, Jesus, let me first put my nets up. They didn't say, Jesus, let me first sell this bit of fish so that I have something to live off of. They straightway, they dropped their nets, and they followed Christ. They had hearts yielded. They had lives yielded. Careers yielded to the call of Christ. Matthew was sitting at the receipt of custom, doing his job as a publican, When Jesus called and said, follow me. And Mark 2 2, verse 14 tells us that he arose and followed him. These men had lives. They had priorities. They had earthly jobs. They had goals. They had ambitions. Some of them had families. We know Peter was married. But when Jesus asked for those priorities to change, they didn't even think twice. They followed. They laid up for themselves in doing so great treasure in heaven. To fully follow Jesus means to yield the right to your personal priorities. And then you live life and you live it every day with an eye toward what Christ would have you to do. And each day that Jesus says yes to the life that you're living, you continue to live it. But on the day that Jesus looks at you and says, follow me to something new, your priorities need to change. The the rights have been yielded. You need to follow so following Jesus means yielding your rights. It means yielding your rights to comfort, material gain. It means yielding your rights to personal priorities. It also means yielding your rights to personal relationships. This is the third and final account that we've looked at this evening. It is again a man who steps out to commit himself to following Jesus. But he asks Jesus to allow him first to go home and to say goodbye to his loved ones. Again... This is not a bad thing in itself. To love your family and to desire to have some closure with that family is a fine thing. But not when it gets in the way of the urgent call of Christ to follow. And Jesus replied, No man having put his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. The man who would determine to follow Jesus only to look back in longing for the world that he has been called to leave behind is reflecting in himself double-mindedness. A part of his heart still rests in the world. And Jesus says that's a problem. A problem which will dramatically reduce his effectiveness for the gospel. Jesus said it this way in Matthew 6, 24. No man can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God And, mammon, it is impossible to truly serve Christ with a divided heart. Jesus does not share his throne, not even with our closest friends and family. There is no doubt from the word of God that those around us, family and friends, deserve our love and loyalty. Isn't that true? The fifth commandment, children, is to honor thy father and mother. Right? Ephesians 6, verses 1 and 2. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor thy father and mother, which is the first commandment, with promise. The fifth commandment tells us, Honor thy father and mother, that thy days may be long upon the land which the Lord thy God hath given you. There's no question that we are to love others. The second great commandment, the first great commandment, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy might. The second, like unto it, Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. There's no question you're to love the people around you. There's no question that you are to love the household of faith. There's no question that you are to pour yourselves into the lives of others. But let us never forget that the second great commandment, to love thy neighbor as thyself, comes after the first great commandment. That thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thine heart and soul and might. In other words, if you're attempting to do the second great commandment, at the expense of the first great commandment, you've missed it. You can't live that way. It doesn't work that way. Jesus promised in Mark 10, 29 and 30, Verily I say unto you, There is no man that hath left house, or brethren, or sisters, or father, or mother, or wife, or children, or lands, for my sake and the gospels. But he shall receive an hundredfold, now in this time, houses and brethren Sisters and mothers and children in lands with persecutions and in the world to come eternal life. What is Jesus saying there? This, this is a very special passage of scripture to me. Mark 10 is the passage that I read when God confirmed my call to the ministry. Jesus is saying this to the man that is willing to give up everything that he holds dear, that is willing to give up all those things that humanity clings to as life and health and home and happiness and comfort and love, that man will find as he goes out into the world to share the gospel that he has just made mothers, fathers, sisters, brothers, and houses all over the place that there are people who will love him that there are people who will care for him may i put it to you this way my wife and i uh, we we live uh, 20 hours from her from from her folks and we live 16 hours from my folks and when we moved up to minnesota we if there was one thing we were not happy about it's how far away from family we moved uh, many people in Minnesota live very close to family. Uh, they've lived uh, around family for a long time. And a lot of people live here and stay here and, and die here. And, and, and it's just, uh, there, there's, there's a lot of people, especially outside of the, of the cities, of course, that uh, have just lived in the area for a really long time. And we've noticed that since we've been up here. And what a blessing that is, that when it's Thanksgiving and when it's Resurrection Sunday and when it's Christmas, there's just a lot of family to go to. There's people all around. And, and, and that's a blessing. And what a wonderful thing. but do you know when God called me to ministry and he gave me this verse what this verse is saying is you will go to a place that you know not but there will be family for you there and is that not the case my wife and I say all the time the church is our family and thank God that he has given us blood family who, who is close to us and their believers and such so that we can have fellowship with them. But there is nothing wrong with this group of people being more close and intimate with me and my family than our blood relatives. Because that's Jesus' promise. That there's no man who has left all of those things behind that he would call comfort who will not in this time find those things in abundance among the people of God. And so the man doesn't have a family, uh, children and a wife, but he has a whole church of young people to, 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 to be a blessing to and to bless. So uh, a man does not have his extended family here, but he has a whole church of men and women who will invite them over for a meal and who will celebrate holidays with them and who will be for them family and who they can call when they have a need. And Jesus says that's the blessing that will be found. Now he says it will come with persecutions. Because that's the legacy of Christ. It will come with those who reject Christ. And it will come with those things. But God says they're still there. And then by the way in the world to come you'll receive eternal life. You'll receive the greater inheritance. And this is what the Bible calls faith. Hebrews 11:6 But without faith it is impossible to please him For he that cometh to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him Do you believe that Do you believe that verse 3 of trust and obey But we never can prove the delights of his love until all on the altar we lay For the favor he shows and the joy he bestows are for them who will trust and obey. Faith precedes blessing. Do you believe that if you are willing to take everything that you have, every right and put it on the altar, so when you think ahead to your future, you say, well, I know what I'd like. Children, maybe you think ahead and you say, I know what I'd like. I'd like to have a family. I'd like to have this. I'd like to have that. I'd like to live on a farm. I'd like to live in the city. I'd like to be here. Whatever it might be. But is it all on the altar? So that if God says, I want you single. As 1 Corinthians tells us, might very well happen. You say, okay. I wanted it, but it's yours. So you say, I want to be in the city. And God says, I want you in the country. Or I want to be in the country. And God says, I want you in the city. And you say, okay. I know what I wanted, but it's okay I'm yours so you wanted kids and God doesn't give you kids and so you wanted to be here and God sent you there you wanted to be there and God sent you here it's okay to have desires but the question is this are those desires on the altar because that's faith for he that cometh to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him So Hebrews chapter 11, verse 8 says, by faith, Abraham, when he was called to go out into a place which he should afterwards receive for an inheritance, obeyed. And he went out not knowing whither he went. He didn't even know where he was going, but he went in faith. He said, God has sent me there. And so I'm going to go there. And then he gets there and God says, by the way, I'm going to give this all to you. But it wasn't given to him then. And so as we continue through the narrative, Hebrews chapter 11, verses 24 through 27. By faith, Moses, when he was come to years, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. Esteeming the reproach of Christ of greater riches than the treasures of Egypt. For he had respect unto the recompense of the reward. By faith he forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king. For he endured as seeing him who is invisible. Moses said there's something more important about serving the God of the universe. Than there is about having the riches of Egypt. And so I'm going to say serving God is more important than getting riches. And in doing so he lost the claim to the riches of Egypt. But he gained that which he could not see an eternal inheritance. But what also did he gain? A murmuring, gainsaying, and backbiting people. Right? He gained that too. But if Christ wanted him to bear the reproaches of that wicked group of people, all the better if he may win Christ. Because if he had stayed in Egypt, then he would not have spent those 40 days on the mount. If he had stayed in Egypt, then he would not have had his face literally shining with the glory of the Lord as God called him his friend. If he had stayed in Egypt, he would not have seen the glory of the Lord in the fire on top of Mount Sinai. If he had stayed in Egypt, he would not have seen the glory of the Lord pass by him. And so he esteemed the riches of God and of his word of greater value than the treasures in Egypt. And so Hebrews chapter 11 verse 13 tells us this. These all died in faith, having not received the promises But having seen them afar off and were persuaded of them and embraced them and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. They said God has made promises and the things of this earth are not worthy to be compared to the promises of that which will come. So I'm going to take everything that this earth has to offer and I'm going to put it on the altar. And if God says I want that, He has it. This is Christian." What it means to follow Christ. This is what it means to follow Christ. This is really what it means. Following Christ does not mean you put a fish on your car. It doesn't. Following Christ does not mean you wear a cross necklace. Really, it doesn't. That's not what it means to follow Christ. Following Christ does not mean... That you do nominal things to tell others that you regard a... Element of Christianity. Following Christ means that you have taken every aspect of who you are and of what you are and of what you do and of where you're going and of where, where you, uh, and, and of what you want and you put it on the altar and you say, God, the only things I want are what you want for me. So take anything and everything that you don't want for me and get rid of it and take everything and anything that you do want for me and give it to me and I'll go. It's not let me first bury my father it's not let me say goodbye to my family if God says okay go say goodbye to your family go say goodbye to your family but if God says I want you now are you willing to go now without saying goodbye to your family if God will let you bury your father then okay by all means bury your father but if God says no go preach the gospel now are you willing to go now To fully follow Jesus means yielding your rights. It means yielding your rights to material gains and comforts. It means yielding your rights to personal priorities. It means yielding your rights to personal relationships. And to whatever degree you allow the things of this world, even the good things, to the degree that you allow them to command your love and loyalty, you can mark it down that this is the limit of your usability for Christ. The usability for Christ is not an on-off switch. You're you're usable, you're not usable. You're usable, you're not usable. It's a spectrum. How usable are you? This is usable. This is not. Wherever that love for the world hits, that's that's the limit to your usability. You love the world this much, that's the limit to your usability. You love the world this much, that's the limit to your usability. to whatever degree you are hanging on to something, to some right of your own, that is the degree to which you are limited in God's capacity to use you. No man having put his hand to the plow, but looking back, is fit, is fully equipped and useful for the kingdom of God. But to whatever degree you echo the words of Paul, what things were gained to me, those I counted loss for Christ, to that same degree you will find God use you today, And you'll find blessing tomorrow. And whatever you might have yielded today, you will find it returned to you in the kingdom of our Lord. And so we ask a question of ourselves this evening. What is limiting your usefulness in Christ's kingdom work? What is limiting your usefulness in Christ's kingdom work? What are you holding on to? God, I will follow, but don't take my comforts. Don't take my comfort zone of a house, or of location, or of bank account, or of lifestyle, or of country, or of culture. You can have me as long as you don't ask of me this thing because that's where I'm going to have to draw the line. You're limiting God's capacity to use you. God, I'll yield to you, but I won't yield the right to not be used. Whoa, that's an interesting one, isn't it? I have to be used. Well, what if God sees fit to not use you in the way you want to be used of Him? God, I need that ministry. Well, what if God doesn't see fit to use you in that ministry? God, that's what I want because that's my talent. Well, what if God wants to put you somewhere where you have no talent so that you don't get the glory and He does? Are you willing to yield it? But that's not my comfort zone. What if that's exactly where God wants you? Because when we are weak, then He is strong. God, I will follow, but let me first bury my dead. Let me first raise my kids, and then you can have me. Let me first get my promotion, and then you can use me. Let me first build my nest egg, and then I'm yours. Let me first get that degree. Let me first find that spouse. You can have me, but let me first finish my ambition. You're not fully usable for the gospel. There is something holding you back. God, I will follow. But don't take me too far away from my family. God, I will follow, but don't ask me to go without my kids or grandkids. I will follow, but don't put me too far away from my parents. I will follow, but don't ask me to give up that friend or that life that I know. I will follow, but don't put me in danger or my family in danger. You can have me, but let me retain my relationships. You're not fully usable. And look, you put it all on the altar. You put it all on the chopping block, and it doesn't mean God's going to take it from you. God doesn't always take it from you, but he wants it to be there. He wants to have ownership over it. He wants that of you because that shows a heart that is fit, usable for the kingdom of God. That is the place where our hearts need to be for God to be able to use us. Because then when God says, I need you here, you're not going to question it because you are his. Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.4, No man that warreth entangleth himself with the affairs of this life that he may please him who hath chosen him to be a soldier the soldier intent upon doing his job does not allow himself to be distracted by the affairs of this life because it will dull his edge it will soften his advantage the nearest thing we have to this today uh, as far as a relation might be concerned and of course our group may not relate to it as closely but if you think about an athlete athletes have an edge have a focus, and they go through great lengths before an event to hone in and to focus on that event. And when an athlete's focus is diverted, sometimes you might be uh, watching some some uh, um, sporting event, and a person might be, you know, dropping the ball or, or not hitting well or or not running as fast or not jumping as high or whatever the sport may be, and they'll say something to the effect of, "Well, right now his mom is going through cancer, or or his wife just had a baby." And they'll remark upon the fact that there is something in his life that is distracting him from his performance. And it is lessening his edge. It is reducing his capacity to function at full performance value. This is the idea that if you have things in your life that are tugging at you, that are pulling you, if you are not wholly invested in the work of the kingdom, so that there are other things in your life that have a priority to where when God says, I want you here, you're going like this, and you're looking back while you're scooting towards what God would have you to do, you, you're, you're, you're being torn in two directions. And you're being less effective for Christ. To whatever degree you allow a love for this world and the things of this world to override the priorities of Christ, to that same degree you will fall short of God's best for you. 1 John 2, verses 15 to 17. John writes this, Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. For if any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world passeth away, and the lust thereof. But he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. That's speaking of the things that are sinful in the world, right? The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. Those should be defaults, shouldn't they? If it's wrong, it's gone. But we're talking as well tonight about those things that are okay. Family and friends and careers. Those are good things. Those are okay in their proper place. And so Paul would say to the Corinthian believers in 1 Corinthians 9 beginning in verse 24. Know ye not that they which run in a race run all? But one receiveth the prize so run that ye may obtain. And every man that striveth for the mastery that's seeking to win is temperate, is under control in all things. Now they do it, speaking of those athletes, to obtain a corruptible crown. But we and incorruptible Paul then turns it to him he says I therefore so run not as uncertainly so fight I not as one that beateth the air but I keep under my body and bring it into subjection lest by any means when I have preached to others I myself should be a castaway Paul says I train and I fight and I keep myself under subjection I discipline myself everything stays on the altar lest by any means when I have preached to others I myself should be a castaway so the question what is limiting your usefulness in Christ's kingdom work? Is there something that the Holy Spirit has placed? You know, everything should be on the altar and it should fundamentally affect every aspect of how we live our lives. When you wake up in the morning and you look in the mirror, every aspect of what you see should be submitted to the will of Christ. It should be on the altar. God, is what I'm wearing right? Is how I look right? And if there were to come a day where something, where where the Holy Spirit inside you says, you know what, you need to, you need to look at that, you need to change that. Is it on the altar? And when you look at the house that you have and the cars that you, and the that you have and the things that you have and the things that you don't have and the things that you might want, it's okay to want things. It's okay to desire things. It's okay to, to 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 use this world, as we mentioned this morning, while not abusing this world. But is it on the altar so that when you look at that and you say, I want that, you say more appropriately, God, I want that, but only if you want it for me. God, I have this and I'll, I'll, I'll I thank you for it as long as you see fit to give it to me. Parents, do you look at your children that way? God, thank you for the children that you've given to me, but I just want to remember that they're yours. And for as long as you see fit to give them to me, I will do my best with them, but the day that you take them away, they're yours. God, thank you for this church. God, thank you for 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 all the things that you've given, but they're all on the altar, and what you want with them is what you can ha- <clears throat> is is what you deserve and, and and it's all yours. You can have it all. Ask God, is there anything I'm holding on to that is not yours? And listen for His answer and expect the Holy Spirit to place His thumb on something that you won't give up. Not only are you willing to give that up, but then here's the the, the deeper question. Are you even willing, are you ready to ask that question? Are you ready to receive that answer? May I implore you to be willing? And I implore you to be willing because every ounce of sacrifice... Every ounce of sacrifice that you could possibly give to Christ is absolutely worth it. And you need to believe this. In Mark 10, the Bible says, No man who gives up the things in this life will, will, will not receive one hundredfold in this life and in the uh, life to come, everlasting life or eternal life. Hebrews 11 says, Christ is the rewarder of them that diligently seek Him. Now I can tell you all day, That it's worth it. But it won't make a difference unless you have the faith to step out and receive it. It doesn't make a difference unless you're willing to obey what Jesus says and follow me. May I may I ask you to do something this week? Could I ask you to take a piece of paper and to write a list of all those things that you want in life? Or all of those things that you have that you love? Those things that you have that are what you wanted... Write a list of everything, the home and the land and the bank account and the, the security and the comforts and the family and the brothers or the sisters or the parents or what you want in one day with children or spouse or job or career or, 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 or whatever it might be. May I, may I encourage you to write a list of everything? And then to go down that list and prayerfully say, God, I want this, but only if you want it. I want this. Only if you want it Thank you for this For as long as you've given it to me It's yours It's yours It's yours My right to it Is yours My right to whatever it is That I have Or that I want Is yours My right to my health My health is here As long as you want me to be healthy The day that you don't want me to be healthy The day you take it away My health is yours The day you take away the money, it's yours. The day you take away, it's yours. Doesn't mean he's going to, but is it on the altar? Is it yielded? You know, following Hebrews 11, we talked about Hebrews 11. These all died in faith, having not received the promise, having seen it afar off. We read this in Hebrews 12, verses 1 and 2. Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which doth so easily beset us. And let us run with patience the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. You don't have to do this expecting a life of misery. Jesus set the example. He endured shame and grief. The Son of Man had nowhere to lay His head, He was beaten, he was bruised, he was scorned, he was whipped, he was killed for that which he did not do, for sins which he did not commit in innocency, but he did so for the joy that was set before him. Because if he saw with eyes of faith, if you look with eyes of faith, what you will see is that there's an eternity and there's an inheritance where if you give that which you cannot keep, you will gain what you cannot lose. But you have to believe it. You have to commit to it in faith. This has to become real to you. Say, it's not real to me, Pastor. I just don't get it. Would you just wrestle with it? Would you get down on your knees and say, God, make this real to me? Make this real to me. Make this life of sacrifice real to me. Help me to understand what it means to give of my rights and to yield my rights to you so that you can do what you will or what you won't. With me, and that is when life will change. Lay aside the weights, any priority, any idol, anything standing above God, anything that you say, "God, I will serve you," but I, but you can't have that. But let me first do that, so that we may run this race that God has set us t- to run with patience. You know, there are some under the sound of my voice who have been fooling yourselves. You're living a life, you're doing it right, you're doing things, you're not doing things. You've put Christ in, but you've only put him in where he fits. You've made certain sacrifices, but you can think back to that time or to that thing where God asked for it and you said, no God, that's too much. You reasoned it away. You most likely had some really good reason why you won't give that thing to God. It might have even been a spiritual reason, but you kept it back from him. Jesus said, follow me. And you said, God, I'll follow you, but first. And if there is something standing between you and the call of Christ to follow, not that he's going to take it from you, but maybe you haven't yielded the right. If the spirit of God has put his thumb on it, would you make that decision now to to yield it? I don't know what that'll mean for you. I don't know fully what that'll mean to yield I don't know if it'll mean changing your lifestyle choices directions maybe it means going home and calling that friend and telling them you can no longer have the same relationship with them because as we talked about this morning there's a problem with unequal yoking maybe it means you need to go to work and put in your two week notice for a job where you can prioritize that which God has called you to prioritize Maybe it means you need to begin preparing for, for something new that God had called you to and you had said no before. If there's something on the uh, that's not on the altar, would you put it there? Or maybe He'll ask for nothing more of you than where you are right now. But when you put the things that you have on the altar, when you yield your right to it, God says, Okay, now it's mine, and now I'm going to bless you. And use you. And things will only get better. I don't know. I can tell you my own, my own experience. I can tell you my own story. I can tell you the stories of men and women that I've talked to in this room that have done that very thing. And, and, and what, and the point that they came to where they had to yield. And when they finally yielded it, then the windows of heaven opened. You hear it in the testimonies of the missionaries that come, right? they're sitting in service and they're they're saying, Lord, how can I be used? And they're heading in one direction and then a missionary comes to their church and says, this is the field I'm going to and the Lord places upon their heart this deep burden to go to a people group who have not heard and they go. And though they had every other idea in mind as to what their life would be when the Lord called for them to go they did it because they're right to those things. They're right even to their idea of what they wanted out of life was yielded and on the altar of Christ. Maybe nothing comes to mind this evening. Maybe as you've asked the Holy Spirit, there's nothing that the Spirit has placed his thumb on and said, You need to give this up. Maybe young people, you're listening and you say nothing really comes to mind right now. You're under your parents' instruction. You're submitting to their authority. You're diligently learning and growing and serving as you can. You're doing everything you can to, to the limited degree that you're able within this season of life. Would you simply make that determination tonight as you think toward what you might want someday to take that list of what you might want and just submit it to Christ? Say, Christ, this is what I might want one day, but it's yours I want to be this, I want to do this, I want to go there, but it's yours. And this is, I can, this is what I can tell you about that, and it's not just my own opinion. I can tell you, on the authority of God's word, that every ounce of sacrifice in this life, for the cause of Christ, for the gospel, that every yielding of your right to Christ's will is 100% worth it. I have never, ever known anybody who sat down with me and said, yeah, I gave these things up for Christ and now I wish I hadn't. I've never I've never counseled anyone. I've never sat with anybody who said that. But you know what? I've counseled with plenty of people and sat in front of plenty of people who have said, yeah, I didn't give all to Christ and now I wish I'd given more. You'll never regret giving all. You might very well come to regret it if you don't. That's not a threat. I'm not trying to threaten you or or make you fearful. All I'm saying is this. Think of King Solomon. Think of Solomon at the end of his days. Think of what we're reading in Ecclesiastes. Think of everything that Solomon says he went through. How many times he uses the word vanity and vexation of spirit in this little autobiography he's writing Think of how different his life could have been if he'd have kept everything on the altar. That's the idea. And if you're willing to commit your heart to this, you will find a blessing you never could have imagined and riches with simply will not fade away. Let's pray.